We are bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. Welcome to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. This week, Pastor Dion will teach us how to understand genre in Scripture as we kick off our new series, The Good Book. Well, hey, good morning again. Welcome to our new series, The Good Book. When, when, I, was a, when I was a kid, I had this, this tiny Bible. I remember it being small, um, and it was called The Good News Bible. Does anyone remember The Good News Bible? Yeah, in my mind, I'm not sure if I have this right. In my mind, the good, this Bible that I had was maybe just even a New Testament and a Psalms. And I know that's how the Good News Bible began, just as a New Testament translation. Uh, it then became a whole Bible translation. It still exists, the Good News translation, as a highly readable version of the Bible that just makes the Bible more accessible, which, which I really, really appreciate, especially as we're uh, getting into this series. Um, but but the, what I loved most about that Bible, like, I think one of my grandparents gave it to me, what I love most about that Bible still is the name, the Good News Bible. Because I think for me that reinforces something about the Bible that is often hard to believe about the Bible. And that is that it, it is truly the good news. I mean, we've all had the experience where we've sat down and opened up our Bibles and, and what we've read maybe didn't seem so good, it seemed confusing, it, it seemed actually hard, it seemed bad, and, and we didn't know what to do with it. And yet... In this series, what we're going to do is we're going to help give you tools, we're going to equip you with tools so that you can unlock the goodness of Scripture, even the parts that are hard, even the parts that are difficult to understand. Now, um, some of you know that this week, this last week, um, I sent an email out to the congregation about some recent concerns that have bubbled up over the last several months. And if you're in membership here, you should have gotten that email. If not, check your email. And if you checked your email, but it's still not there, check your junk mail. Could be there. And then if it's still not there, go ahead and contact us and make sure that we have the, uh, the right contact info for you. Uh, but one of the things that I addressed, one of the concerns, is what we're talking about in this very series. This is God's timing on this stuff. It's just simply this. We here at Pathfinder are fully committed to the Scriptures. And Doug Moss is, is a close colleague of mine, and we as your teaching pastors, I can tell you we have no desire to teach anything contrary to the Scriptures. Not only that, we have no desire to avoid anything in the Scriptures just because it's hard. Uh, we are also men who are under the authority of the Board of Elders who've been around for a long time, and, and they oversee our doctrine. We, we have a very public and vast audience listening to our teaching each week people of all different kinds of uh, theological backgrounds. And one of the things that we keep hearing from people over and over again is that, is that people love our teaching because it's so scriptural. And it's not just scriptural, but it's scriptural in a way that really does unlock the goodness, the, the, the true-to-life stuff, the stuff that we can take and apply to our lives. And, and really, that's what this series is, is about. We're trying to help you discover the goodness of Scripture, not just when you're here on the weekends, and, and we're helping you do that, and that's an important part of this journey too, but we want to help you unlock the goodness of Scripture throughout the rest of your life too. And so to start off this, uh, this series, we're going to start off with one of my favorite sections or one of my favorite kinds of Scriptures. So we're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew. I love the Gospels. Um, but we're going to start off specifically with a parable of Jesus as we talk about today's topic. So Matthew 13 is where we're going first. It says this, the same day uh, Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the lake. 
And such large crowds gathered around him, you know, they're kind of pressing him out into the water, right? These mobs of people, we talked about this uh, maybe last week or a couple weeks ago, uh, so that he got into a boat. And he puts out in this boat a little bit from shore, becomes his, you know, kind of impromptu pulpit. He sits out there and he begins to teach the people. And this is what he told them. He told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. And some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil, so it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up and the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them, let them hear, Jesus says. Now, first thing I want to say about this parable is that this is not a true story. Jesus is not recounting some moment in his life where he witnessed a farmer doing all of this. I mean, this, if so, he should have stopped the guy and been like, hey, what are you doing, buddy? This is not how you sow seed, right? You, you, pl- you till the soil, you get it nice, you drop seeds in, you just don't start throwing seed everywhere. You don't even do that when you're overseeding your lawn, right? I mean, this is, this is crazy. This is not a true story that Jesus witnessed. This is not a funny anecdote where he's like, guys, guys, get this. <laughs> Check out this guy I saw the other day. He was, he was out of his mind throwing seed everywhere. This is a story that Jesus made up. Now, wait a minute. What are we saying here? That the Bible's made up? No. What I'm saying is parables are made up. They're intentionally made up stories, and they're made up to convey a, a deeper truth, right? So on the surface, we could say parables aren't true, but they're made up stories that do convey important truths, things that are very true that we need to take hold of. Now, if that confuses you, it also confused Jesus's disciples because they came to him right after this teaching with a question. The disciples came and said, so why do you speak to the people using these parables, And Jesus replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, you know, the stuff that Jesus is teaching, has been given to you, my disciples, but not to them. We'll talk about them later. And then he goes on and he says, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. And then he quotes the the scriptures. Though seeing, they do not see. Though uh, Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise... They might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. They might, you know, repent, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, he says to his disciples, because they see, and your ears because they hear. Now, the disciples come to Jesus with a pretty simple question, like, why why do you do this parable stuff? And for me, I could think of a bunch of answers of why parables are a great way to teach. Um, You probably agree with these, that teaching through parables or stories is a really powerful way way of teaching. Uh, For one, you get diverse applications with one story. You can tell a story 
And suddenly people's minds are filled with a bunch of different applications. It just has a way of landing in different ways with people. Um, we also know that stories are more memorable than facts. Stories have the ability to, to cut through our ego or our defenses. Uh, they can get to our blind spots kind of indirectly. Some of the prophets love to use stories to convict the kings of their behavior because if they went and said, king, you're off base, then, then ego defensiveness, those blind spots would have, would have you know, caused them to not hear it. But, but sometimes stories have a way of, of, of getting through our defenses. They speak to our emotions, not just our minds. Right? I mean, stories have a way of interacting with the fuller part of our being. Just cognitive truth sometimes just stays up here. It doesn't transform the rest of us. Uh, and then even stories that maybe, you know, I'm not a farmer. I have planted a vegetable garden before, but I'm not a farmer. And yet I, I, I kind of like with a little bit of work, I'm like, okay, I get it. I mean, there's a timeless application to stories. So when the disciples come to Jesus and they say, teacher, why do you teach in parables? It would have made sense for me uh, if Jesus would have answered in any of these ways. Like, hey guys, parables are really an effective teaching tool. That's why you should do it this way. And that's, yet that's not how Jesus answered them. He answers them really strangely. He basically says, you know what, I'm teaching this way because I want to keep people who have a problem with hearing, I want to keep them from hearing. I want to keep people who, who refuse to see, I want to keep them from seeing. In other words, I want to keep people from believing. What? That sounds crazy. Jesus wants to keep people from believing? Now, now before you get too weirded out about all of this, here's, here's what I bet we all have experienced. We've all experienced in our lives people who, who will hear us, but they refuse to listen to us. I mean, if you're a parent, you've experienced this. This may be the only thing you've ever experienced as a parent, right? You hear, but you're not actually listening to me. We've all experienced it in different parts of our lives. And so, and so that's kind of what Jesus is saying, that, you know, there, there are people out there, there's a group of people who, who, who will hear, but they aren't really inclined to listen. And the them that he's talking about is primarily the religious leaders. See, these religious leaders are people who fancy themselves very sophisticated. And so on the surface, you know, Jesus telling these, you know, simple, plain stories, I mean, for sophisticated theologians like the religious leaders, you know, they want to talk about doctrine. They want to talk about, you know, big, important expositions of scripture with word studies. They have no time for these children's messages. I will say this, though. Uh, my previous church, children's messages were a part of our practice. We didn't have children's ministry running at the same time as our services. Um, and I'll say this, that often on those weekends where, where I did a children's message and then I preached a message... I know for certain that people remembered and spent more time talking about the children's message than they did the message. And frankly, I don't want to think about the implications of what that might mean too much right now because I'm in the middle of something, but I promise I will later. See, on one hand, the Pharisees are too sophisticated for these stories, right? right? I mean, this, this, isn't, this isn't deep enough for us. And then on the other hand, um, Jesus knows that their, their hard-headedness, their hard-heartedness he knows that that will cause them to miss the point. We all know this too, that, that sometimes when someone has an assumption about you, when they think they know who you are, or what you believe, or where you stand on something, it doesn't matter what you say. Like they're going to read into what you say, whatever message they think you're saying. And so Jesus says, you know what, I'm not even going to bother trying to be very direct and clear. Instead, I'm going I'm to throw some stories out there so that these people who just want to load their assumptions on it, they're free 
to do that. So it's not that Jesus doesn't want to believe. He's just saying, hey, I understand that some people are just not open. In fact, he goes on and he begins then in the very next verse to decode the parables, uh, the parable he just told to his inner group, to his disciples. Because it's not just the religious leaders who don't understand, but his disciples also don't really understand what he means. And Jesus here is is dividing some groups here. He's saying, you know, there are those of us who open up the Bible and we don't understand just because we're genuinely confused. We're not trying to be hard-headed or hard-hearted. We're not trying to be resistant. It's just confusing stuff. It's It's a book written a long time ago. It might not all make sense to us right away. There are those of us who come to it kind of honestly confused. And then there are those of us who come to the Bible stubbornly obstinate and Jesus says those, those groups are different, and, and that's how he explains it even as he decodes this parable. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. Again, reminding us this is a made-up story. The point is not about this farmer. The point is really what this means. He goes on and he says, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom, right, here's the word I'm speaking, and does not understand it. Again, um, different kinds of understanding. This word understand in Greek actually means more like you you fail to reckon with it. You fail to to try to grasp it intelligently. Or it even can mean you fail to let your your mindset be challenged by it. Right? It's not just like, oh, you don't understand. You know, you're you're not sophisticated enough. It's instead like like you hear it, but you you don't let it get at you. You don't, you don't go home and think about it. You don't let it challenge your current assumptions. You don't let it do its work. That's really what this word means that's translated understand. So when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not do that work, it's like the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path, right? It's, it's, it's packed down. It's hardened. Nothing can get in. And in that case, Jesus says, I, I speak my word and it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away, right? So the seed's there, it starts to grow, but, but they, they're not rooted, so stuff gets hard and they wither. Jesus says there, there's kind of a different group of people out there that's kind of like that. He says the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, you know, stuff starts to happen, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth, right, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So so again, the word's trying to do its work. It might be fertile soil, but there's all this other stuff that chokes out the fruitfulness of the word. That's another kind. Uh, Jesus finally says, but the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and and they contend with it, right? They let it in, they do the work, they they wrestle with it, they let it challenge their thinking. Again, that word. So they they try to understand it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 100 or 60 or even, even 30 times what was sown. Do you see? One story... This parable with all of this deeper truth. And maybe as Jesus was explaining it, and we were unpacking it together in just a moment, maybe there were even some thoughts in your mind about about the condition of your own heart. Maybe you're like, man, that's me right now. 
Like, I, I think the word is fruitful in my life, but there are all these worries, there are all these stresses in my life that I feel like are choking out the fruitfulness of what God wants to do. They're choking out my joy, or they're choking out my love, they're choking out my peace, right? I mean, I, I feel that sometimes. It's not that I'm not trying to contend with the word, it's just all this other stuff is, is choking it out. Or maybe you think of someone else in your life and you're going, oh, maybe that's what's going on with them right now. They're just, they're just too hardened. Or, or maybe, maybe you think about another season in your life and, and you're like, yeah, that was me. There, there are too many rocks in my life and, and the word just couldn't take root. It was just too shallow. And, and so I was kind of you know, there and fading in, fading out. See, that's the power of a parable. And that's why they're so effective. That's why Jesus loved to teach in parables. They have this way of just speaking you know, all the things that we talked about. But here's what's important. Right? I just briefly walked you through, Jesus actually walked us through, what you do when you encounter a parable in Scripture. You decode it. You try to understand what all the things mean. But here's what's important. To take that perspective or that approach about how to read parables... And then to start to apply it to all the other parts of Scripture, to read the rest of the Bible that way, including non-parables, that is a mistake. And yet, I know people who do this, and I kind of understand why. Um, Because there are other things in the Bible that seem kind of hard to believe. Um, We're going to look at another example here in Matthew chapter 8. Same book of the Bible. We were just in Matthew 13. We're going back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 8. This is a situation a lot like that. Jesus, again, finds himself in a boat. Remember Matthew 13, he went on a boat, and he's kind of teaching from the boat. All the people are on the shore. This time, Jesus is in a boat, and I want to show you what happens. It says, then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. And suddenly, while they were out on the water, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And he replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? It's kind of like when your kid wakes you up, you know, in the middle of the night. Mommy, daddy, I'm scared. You're just like groggy. You're like, go back to bed. It's fine. The doors are locked. We live in West County. You know, like it's fine. You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. It's an extraordinary moment, but but if we take that kind of learning from parables and we're like, oh, I get it. I mean, no one can stand up and talk to wind and water and and they listen, right? Or the song earlier, uh, you know, three guys can't walk around in a a basically a a, a crematory and and survive it. Of of course not. I get it. These are just made up stories that are intended to have a deeper meaning. They didn't really happen. They're just there to convey some deeper truth. That's a mistake. Because unlike Matthew 13, this is not a parable. This is history. This is biography. It actually happened. And what that means is we can still interpret this event. We can still apply it to our lives, right? We we can still say because this happened, because Jesus did this once, because he's demonstrated his power, because he now has set a precedent, because he, he has a track record, here's what we can know. We can know that whenever we're going through something hard or scary, we're not alone. We know Jesus is still with us. 
And we don't have to fear because he's got power over everything in our lives. Whatever storms we might face, right? We can even interpret it that way. Whatever storms we might face, we know we're going to be okay because Jesus is still with us. There's another in the fire as we sing. And we can say that not because this is some sort of made-up story that has a deeper truth. We can say this because this actually happened and God demonstrates for us how we can behave in moments of panic, not just when we're out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat with Jesus, but we can then apply that, right? We can roll that forward because God has demonstrated his character in every other part of our lives. So what makes the path to interpretation different? What makes it different is this thing that we're talking about today called genre. Now, if you know uh, anything about literature, if you kind of study that, you know there, there's different genre in literature. Here's what you might also know, and I love this graphic for this reason. I know it's kind of small, but these are all of the little books of the Bible. I love this graphic because it, it reminds us that the Bible is not a single book. It's actually a collection of books. 66 books written throughout time by many different human authors, all inspired by God. So it reminds us that the Bible actually consists of all these separate books. Um, and, and it also then tells us that these books all are kind of written in a different style. They're, they're different genre of literature. And so just in the same way that you read different literature, fiction, nonfiction, history, uh, you know, historical um, autobiography versus memoir, uh, you read those things different because you kind of know they're a different style of, of writing. There's different rules. You read different parts of the Bible differently for the same reason. So starting at the very beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all of the, the early parts of the Bible, history, those are history that we believe actually happened. And yet even with history, some of these are more biographical. Some of them are stories of people. Um, some of these, like Leviticus, they are history, but they're actually case law. Um, reading Leviticus, if you open Leviticus and you expect you know, lots of inspiration from it, instead it's going to feel a little bit like reading you know, like civil building codes or something. You're like you know, reading a deck code if you want to build your deck. I mean, that's kind of Leviticus or it's reading penal codes. If you've ever studied the law, it says, hey, this is what you should do in this case and this is how you handle this and if you break this law, this is what's going to happen to you. That's, that's what Leviticus is. And it's, so it's this historical book. Then you've got poetry books. And we all know you've got, you got to read poetry different. Remember back in school, the first time you read a poem and you're like, simile and metaphor and conceit and, you know, all these different literary things. If you try to read poetry like history, you're going to come up with some weird stuff. Uh, there's wisdom literature that's kind of poetic, but it's, it's, a, it's a teaching literature. It's about practical stuff, but it's kind of got some poetic overtones to it, very much um, dedicated to, to bringing us to greater wisdom. There's a whole genre called prophecy. Uh, when you read any of the prophetic books in Scripture, Here's what you can know, that God only raises up prophets during tough times when he has something hard to say. So um, if you kind of are like, man, God looks really angry in the Bible. Well, if you're reading the prophets, that's why the prophets are there, because God is upset about something and he's trying to call his people back to faithfulness. And so prophecy will, will kind of have that tone to it. It'll also have some poetic or symbolic uh, moments in it, um, in, in there too. Uh, then we go to the New Testament, we have history again. But these histories are different. These histories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call gospels because they're the biographies of Jesus. And so they're historical, just like um, the Old Testament books um, that, that I talked about a minute ago. But, but we, we give them a special name because they're the biographies of Jesus, and we believe he's, he's special. 
Uh, The book of Acts falls into that biography category too, but it's not about Jesus, it's about the early church. We have epistles, which are just teaching letters that, um, that the early church leaders wrote to help teach people about Jesus and what that all means for how they live life and to address different concerns. We have apocalyptic books of the Bible. Revelation's not actually the only one. Large sections of Ezekiel are also apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is like poetic books cranked up a notch. So symbolic. And a lot of the problems with Revelation, a lot of the reasons people read Revelation so differently is because they they read this genre that's apocalyptic, very symbolic, takes a lot of decoding, They read it in a more literal sense, as if it's a literal telling of what's going to happen at the end of times, and uh, and that's, that's not how it should be read. Now, you see, depending on what kind of book you're reading, the genre of the book, there's a different path to interpretation. You don't read these things all the same. You first ask the question, oh, what, what, what genre is this? What style is this? in order to interpret it. To make it a little more confusing, like we just saw in Matthew's gospel, although Matthew is a history... It's it's a biography. It contains moments where Jesus is speaking symbolically or poetically or even with apocalyptic language. And so even within a genre, there are sometimes, uh, you know, where you say it's primarily a gospel, there there are these other other, um, genres in there. Now, I want you to notice as you're looking at this graphic, I want you to notice what's not listed as a biblical genre. One of the things that you don't see up there is encyclopedia of pithy quotes, and yet I feel like that's a common misunderstanding about the scripture. We, we just kind of feel like the whole Bible is just, you search a word and you see what it says and then you try to apply it. If you've ever done this, you know, you go to a Bible search and you type in money because you're looking for money advice. Here's what you'll come up with. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs. It's Ezra chapter seven. Now, if you take that and you're like, okay, this is God's investment advice to me, right? You're missing the point. You're missing what Ezra's talking about as a prophet. You have to first understand what he was talking about and even the context of this, which we'll talk about more next week. Or if you go to Proverbs, wisdom literature for finances, money, okay? He took his purse, filled it with money, and will not be home till full moon. I mean, it sounds fun, but I don't know if it's good godly money advice, right? Um, Just go spend the money. Don't come home till full moon, dear, right? And and so the Bible is not an encyclopedia of pithy quotes. First, you got to do a little work. You're like, what on earth is that about? And and that's because Proverbs are a different kind of literature. You'll also notice that um, in in that graphic, I guess it's not there anymore, but um, we don't see as a genre instructional manual. And yet so many of us expect the Bible to be an an instructional manual, We've even heard the Bible called B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's kind of good, but it's not that easy, is it? You just don't open up the Bible and read instructions like, like you would in, in a manual. And it's no wonder that so many of us get frustrated when we open up our Bibles, if that's our expectation. It would be like going to your car's owner manu- owner's manual when you're trying to figure out how to replace a fuse because something's not working right, and you open up the owner's manual and it says, there once was a farmer who went out to scatter seed. (laughs) You'd be frustrated. You'd be like, where's the fuse box? That's what I want to know. And the Bible is not an instructional manual in that way. Now that said, the Bible does give instruction, just not like a manual does. The Bible gives instruction. It is our guide to life, but to get to that guidance, it takes a little work. And the first part of that work is just to stop and to say, okay, what what kind of writing 
is this? What is this book of the Bible primarily? What is the author saying? Is, it, is this poetic? Is this literal? Is this you know, symbolic? Is this apocalyptic? Is this prophetic? What, what is this? And understanding genre first can help us with that. Now, now here's what I want to say. Nothing that I've said so far, none of this is new wave. I know that from time to time someone will come up and write a book and they're like, you know, none of the Bible is right and all of you have been reading it wrong forever. That's not what this is. These are hundreds of year old um, old methods of interpretation taught in very conservative Bible-believing seminaries for a very long time. This, this is, you know, the most conservative of biblical interpretation stuff. There, there's nothing wild or new wave about this. But here's why it's so important that when you understand the genre of scripture that you're reading, then you'll be able to access the goodness that's there. So much of our struggle to find the goodness of this good book is, is that we don't understand the genre. We don't know how to, how to approach it. And, and I'll say this on the flip side, that without a clear understanding of genre, you, you're going to miss the meaning more. You'll miss the, you'll miss the goodness of what's actually being said. I want to show you one more quick example of, of this from Jesus' life. This is from John chapter 2. And Jesus is, is here in, the, in this moment. He's standing in the temple in Jerusalem. And he's talking to the religious leaders. And here's what he says, right? Jesus, he's standing in the temple, talking to the religious leaders who do not like Jesus. Jesus answers them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple. Now, some of you who've been around this church for a long time are like, we were in capital campaigns for 20 years. I mean, that's nothing, 46 years of capital campaigns. They're going, what, what are you talking about? It's taking 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But then John inserts this. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Do you see what's at stake when, when you kind of miss the genre of language? The religious leaders, they thought they knew what Jesus was all about. They knew he was a heretic. They thought he was a blasphemer. So when Jesus stands in the temple courts and he says, destroy this temple, right away they're like, oh, we know what this guy is saying. He's, he's speaking against God's temple. He's blaspheming against the temple. And it is this very statement of Jesus that they bring back later when they arrest him. And they say, this guy, we've heard all these witnesses, and, and these witnesses say that this guy has spoken blasphemy against the temple. He said that the temple should be torn down. Everybody heard it. Because they didn't understand the genre. They didn't understand that Jesus was speaking metaphorically, symbolically. They completely missed the meaning. More than missing the meaning, though, they missed the goodness of what Jesus was saying. See, think about this. When, when Jesus is referring to his own body as the temple, here's what that means. First and foremost, Jesus is declaring that he is the dwelling place of God. That the glory of the temple pales in comparison to the glory of God revealed in Jesus. And here's what's so great about that. That means that instead of us having to go on pilgrimage to some fancy temple to meet with God, that means God has now come down on a pilgrimage in pursuit of us. He's come to find us and to reveal his glory and goodness to us. This is amazing news that God's glory is now manifest and God is walking around looking for us to show us his glory and goodness. But it's not just that. The other thing that Jesus is saying is right at the beginning of John's gospel, he's saying, you know what? And I'm going to let you all destroy me. 
right? The temple, the place where sacrifices were offered, the temple itself will be the sacrifice. Jesus says, I'm going to let myself be torn down. I'm going to let myself be destroyed. I'm going to let myself be offered up for your sins, for the sins of the world, so I can take them away once and for all. He's saying, I am the temple. I'm going to let myself be destroyed, and and yet yet God's going to raise me up again on the third day. I'm going to bring new life into the world so that you can find life. Your sins can be taken away and you can find life. He was saying all of that, but they thought he was talking about the literal temple. And because of that, they not only missed the meaning, they missed the goodness. So instead of falling down on their faces in worship, saying, God has come to us, this amazing thing, and and you love us so much that you're going to give your life for us. What kind of love is this? Instead of falling on their faces in worship, you, you know what they did. They balled up their fists in rage, and they looked for a way to arrest him. And it's not just them, right? It's it's us sometimes. We miss the meaning. In human conversation, we miss the meaning in scripture, and when we do, we miss the goodness because we don't always understand what's really being said. And and so today, this is just kind of the first building block. I'm setting this up. We're going to talk a lot more about this over the series. That, That first and foremost, just realizing that there are all these different sections of scripture and learning a little bit more about, okay, what does it mean and how do I interpret this? Because the rules of interpretation are not all the same. It depends first on the genre. But but here's what I want to say as we close up. That here at Pathfinder, we believe that God's word is always good, even when it's hard. Uh, the psalmist put it this way, and again, psalms are poetry, so put on your you know, poetic thing. How sweet are your words to my taste? Right, we don't really eat God's word, but you know, it, it kind of is a good metaphor. How sweet are your words to my taste? Sweeter than honey to my mouth. See, the psalmist declares something that we believe here, that God's word is always sweet, even when it's hard. There's another place in Revelation 10, again, heavily symbolic book, um, but where John, the one who is receiving the revelation, has an angel appear to him, and the angel reaches out and hands John a scroll and says, I want you to eat this scroll. And then the angel says this, it will turn your stomach sour but in your mouth, it will be sweet. And I I love that description of the word of God because I'll, I'll tell you that mirrors my own relationship with the word of God. That there are moments where I'm reading the scripture and and my stomach will turn over. It's like a gut punch because the scriptures will speak into every part of life, right? The scriptures tell us, um, tell us how we should spend our money how we should handle our enemies, how we should handle conflicts, um, how we should manage our, our bodies, our health, what we should eat, what we should drink, how we should deal with exercise, how we deal with our sexuality. The scriptures tell us who we should love and how we should love. And, and I could go on because the scriptures get into every part of life. And, and sometimes I know for me, I'm reading the scriptures and, and, and something just hits me, it convicts me, it, it turns my stomach over. Like the angel said to John, right? Consume this word. It's, it's going to be sour in your stomach. But here's what I know. Here's what I believe. And here's what I want you to believe. That the reality is in your mouth, it will always be sweet. That, that God's word rightly understood, even when it turned your stomach over, is always good. It's always sweet. 
Because when you know that God's desire is the desire we just saw from Jesus, his desire is, is love for us, to rescue us, to bring us to life. When you know that's his intention in speaking his word, when you understand his motivation, then even the stuff that turns your stomach can still be sweet on your lips. In fact, do you, do you know what the word sin literally means in Greek? The word sin in the Greek New Testament is a word hamartia. Hamartia. And literally, it just means this. It means missing the mark. It means missing the bullseye. It means kind of being out of sync or out of alignment with, with the intentional primary ideal design. See, for Christians, why is sin a problem that should be taken seriously? Because God hates sinful people, and if you sin, God will turn his back on you. No, Jesus, Jesus carried your sin to the cross, and he died for your sin. He's taken it away. Why is sin a problem for Christians? Why should we take it seriously? Because we know it misses the bullseye. It misses, it misses the mark of what is best in life, what is good in life, what, what, is, what is sweet, what makes life really full and abundant and rich. Now the reality is, as you read the word of God, you'll, you'll see a bunch of ways that we all miss the bullseye. But if we can stay open, back to the parable of the sowers, sower, uh, if we can stay open, if we don't let ourselves become hardened, make up our minds, become callous so that we no longer entertain, we no longer wrestle with or let the word of God rattle around in us, even though it may turn our stomach, if we just stop doing that, if, if we say, nope, my mind is made up, then we know how it's going to go. We're going to end up like the religious leaders of the day. But, but if we can stay open and not let ourselves become hardened, here's what will happen. The word of God, although sometimes it may turn our stomach, I promise you it's always good and sweet. It, it will produce a harvest of goodness in your life that will not only be good for others, but it will be good for you. See, this is why the scriptures are worth knowing. And this is why we're dedicated in the series and I'm so excited to help give you tools that will help you engage in a deeper relationship with the scriptures. And at the end of it, you're not all going to be Bible scholars. You don't have to be. The Bible says God gives some to be teachers. And Pastor Doug and I, we went to seminary and we studied this stuff for a long time. And this is my life's work. I've been doing this now for 19 years, preaching the gospel. The goal is not to make us all into Bible scholars. That's, that's not the point. But the point is to have a church full of people who are able on a deeper level to experience the goodness of God's word, to let it be sweeter than honey on your lips because you now know what to do with it. And so right now, I, I wanna pray over us that we would be open for God's work. We would pray, God in heaven, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the parts of your word that turn our stomachs, that that convict us, that call us to something better. But thank you that in the end, we can count on the fact that your word is always sweet. It's always good. It will always have a helpful, beneficial effect in our lives. We're grateful for that. God, now help us be like good soil. God, if, if we're hardened, if our minds are made up, if we're unwilling to contend with your word because we think we know better or because our minds are made up for some reason, I pray that you would do whatever it takes to soften the soil of our hearts. 
so that we might be open to receiving your word, that we might let it do its work. God, if there are rocks in our lives, we pray that you would come in and you would begin to uproot and, and, and take away those rocks so that we can become rooted in you and we will have a faith that stands. God, if, if there are weeds and worries and, and deceit, the deceitfulness of wealth and the deceitfulness of this world, if, if those things are choking out the fruits of faith, the abundance, the goodness of your word in our lives. God, get to work, put on your gardening gloves and rip out those things so that we might be full of your abundance. God, make us all like good soil. Show us what to do with your word when we receive it. Make our hearts open, make our minds open, make our minds attentive and active so that we can receive your word with joy, we can put it into practice. God, so that we can be fruitful, so that we can be full and abundant, so that we can hit the bullseye of what a good life actually looks like. Help us, God, uh, today and, and throughout this series. May it be pivotal for all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to close um, this part of our service off with, with a song. And this song is a, a profession of faith. It says what we believe. And as you sing about what I hope you believe, or at least what you're wrestling to to, to believe. If you're kind of still in progress, that's okay. But as you sing about these words, I hope there will also be not just a profession. I hope you'll also feel a moment of confession where, where you just, as you're singing about what God has done, I hope you have a moment where you can just say in your heart, God, I need you. Jesus, Jesus, I need you. I need what you came into the world to do. I need it personally in my life. So come and have your way. Either way, I invite you to stand up now as we sing this song. Thanks for listening to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. If you would like to hear more messages like this, hit the subscribe button. You can also find more resources at our website, pathfinderstl.org.